morning and welcome to Rising. Emily, I think this is going to be one of our greatest shows ever because we get to talk about good news and Joe Manchin, which we don't get to do very often. So what else do we have, though? You know, we do talk about Joe Manchin often, though. <laughs> that, that's hardly rare. We'll get, we have a, we have a big Almost show today. Almost as much as Joe Rogan, yeah. <laughs> the two critical Joes. Um, well, that's actually right where we're starting today. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the, the bill that was passed in the Senate yesterday, or the deal that we know is uh, you know looming in the Senate when it comes to Joe Manchin and when it comes to Chuck Schumer. Um, this has been, it went from the $4 billion to $2 billion and now to about, I'm sorry, $4 trillion to $2 trillion to now about uh, $380 billion. And Ryan, I'm really eager to get your take on all of that. We're going to be talking um, also about the shifts in how people are thinking uh, of the origins of COVID. We talked a little, bit, a little bit about that with Robbie and Bree yesterday, but we're going to do more of it today. We're talking about Facebook, uh, I should say Meta, actually, and changes they're making to the platform. So we've got a lot on the docket for this morning, this, this great Friday, summer Friday, um, and I think we should start with Mansion, don't you, Ryan? <laughs> I know you want to. I do, I do. Let's let's, and we'll and we'll be talking later about the kind of Mansion machinations that that got us to this this remarkable place, uh, where we're on the brink of seeing, you know, landmark climate legislation and tax reform stuff going through a Congress that everybody thought was basically just done uh, for the year and not just for the year, but probably for Biden's entire term. So, yeah, let's let's run through the deal. You know, it, it, it all the mainstream media will call it a kind of climate and taxes bill and we'll kind of leave it at that. But let's let's go kind of bullet by bullet and, and run through these and tell, tell me what you think of them. Uh, we could start with the drug pricing deal. This is actually a pretty big deal itself. You know, Democrats in 2006 decided that they were going to run on allowing uh, Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices. So, you know, they were going to lower drug prices for seniors. 2006, they've been running on that. When they took, when they finally took power, they cut a deal with the pharmaceutical industry that they would not do that in exchange for pharma's support for Obamacare. Uh, here it is. It's, it's going to be in the bill. It's going to save something like a hundred plus billion dollars a year. It's not. It, it's only going to focus on a couple of dozen expensive drugs, uh, but the amount of money that it saves suggests that it is going to have kind of a ripple effect throughout the industry. What do you make of uh, pharma taking an L here? You know, ph pharma the, is probably the most powerful lobby in Washington D.C. This is not a place that they're accustomed to being. Well, and do they have Joe Manchin's number? <laughs> no, this is a, a great it's point, not. actually. Right. And, and so the fact that Manchin is sort of the critical point in this deal um, that has this element that takes on pharma, I guess, makes me suspicious of the enforcement teeth. Uh, because as you just said, mm -hmm. Ryan, it's not I mean, it's not what Democrats would like. Um, and I think it's not what a lot of Democratic voters would like, certainly. But it is also one of those things we were talking before the show that I would love to see a piecemeal vote on. Um, so many of these items mm -hmm. I would love, like the what they're doing with the carried interest uh, tax, like there's a long time loophole right. carried interest tax that's going to hit PE um, in particular. And I would love to see some of these sort of piecemeal things in this era of the realignment, in this era of the Republican Party, as the, the base of the Republican Party becoming more working class and the base of the Democratic Party becoming more sort of suburban and uh, wealthy. I would love to see piecemeal votes on things like the Medicare negotiations and like carried interest, um, because I suspect it would pressure Republicans um, to probably some chunk of mm -hmm. Republicans, maybe like 10 Republicans to come to the table right. on that. Right. 
Right, because it does expose this the contradiction. Like, are you a working class party, or are you the are you the party of of the elites of private equity of hedge funds? And and for people who who don't know what the carried interest loophole is, basically hedge funds and private equity firms and and some other kind of investment partnerships have figured out a way to basically take their salaries but call them long-term capital gains. Even if, like hedge funds, they're, they're trading stocks like every couple minutes. Uh, they, what they do is they create several different layers removed from those trades and say, well, we're not, we're not the ones trading those. Our shares are in this partnership. We're gonna hold a long-term interest in that partnership. It's an investment, therefore it's a capital gain. Therefore, uh, a regular person, uh, you know, a you know, a teacher in New Jersey might pay 37 percent on their uh, on on their income, federal federal taxes. We're going to only pay 20 percent, and so they get this massive tax break. And because of this loophole, it has kind of distorted the entire market and and created this entire industry of people uh, who can make lower returns than their competitors, but still make more money because they're gaming the tax code. Now, this doesn't completely close the loophole. It it makes some it makes some changes to it. Which is why it only raises, they said, four, I think, 14 billion is the estimate over 10 years. Uh, but this has been kind of the, maybe the second most difficult thing for Congress to get done, uh, other than drug pricing reform, because obviously the private equity and hedge fund lobby is extremely powerful in Washington. Uh, their, their last hope is that Kirsten Cinema uh, will step in and do something about it. But it doesn't. I, it's hard for me to see her doing that. Um, what do you, What do you What's What do you think? I think it's also hard to see her doing that because at this point the incentives uh, have shifted and they really gave her something. I mean, this is this is intentionally crafted um, in the negotiations with Senator Manchin. They got to a place, Chuck Schumer got to a place where this is very intentionally crafted to make it easy for them to vote and to make it really hard for them to vote no. Not only is it easy, did they try to make it easy for them to vote affirmatively on, but they tried to make it really hard for them to vote uh, negatively on something. And so, yeah, I, I feel like the incentive. That said. Um, that does. That, there is room for a poison pill. Uh, there's absolutely room for a poison pill. It takes one little thing that cinema feels could crush her in Arizona. Um, that would get that, that could get added to the, the bill. That could get added in the negotiate. Whatever it is, it, these are fragile. When any time you have um, a majority this thin, the negotiations become incredibly fragile. And so I'm also curious what you think about uh, how they how they handle cinema going forward. Right. I mean, there, there's for a long time been this idea, which has merit of of the rotating villain that the system uh, will throw up, uh, you know, an, an individual senator as the kind of face of the opposition to a particular thing and everybody else will hide behind them. And then you knock down that villain. And all of a sudden there's a there's a new one coming up. So Manchin, you get Manchin on board. Now, all of a sudden, Menendez has a problem with the drug pricing. You get Menendez on board. Then you've got cinema having a problem with this. Uh, but what the rotating villain misses is that if you actually do kind of cleave off these villains and and get their public support then you can only rotate through so many and so now D democrats have really by getting mansion on board they've really isolated gottheimer in the house to the point where you know he has very little uh, room to maneuver because he how, how's he going to say that he's that mansion is not you know a reasonable credible figure on on these on these issues but it also isolates Kirsten Cinema. You know, Cinema could play her games while Mansion was also holding out. But now that Mansion's on board, kind right. of fun and games are over. And sh and Cinema is an extraordinary fundraiser, no doubt about it. 
and she gets a decent amount of money from kind of Republican leading billionaires. But most of her money comes from partisan Democrats and people forget that. And so that means that there is a weapon that Schumer, Pelosi and the Democratic Biden, the Democratic leadership, you know, have against cinema. You know, if cinema bucks them on this, they can they can tell those donors like this. This is over. Like this is the bill that we want. If you take this down, if cinema takes this down and you continue giving money to Kirsten Cinema, then you're persona non grata. Like all Huge of the leverage. money that you've given to the yeah, all the money you've given to the Democratic Party that, you know, that now they might be bluffing and they might say, no, it, we lost. We need your money. You can come back later. Uh, but it, it's a it's a threat that I think a lot of these people are not going to want to watch. And also, even even though these people are you know super wealthy, some of these partisan donors you know, would actually like to see Democrats succeed at something, even if it even if it costs them a little bit of money. Because so they think I, I think she's a bit isolated. Right, because they think this correlates with their ability to win particular races and to maybe hold on right. to the Senate in the midterms. And if the power and is on makes, the table, right. you want this huge right. talking point going into the fall. I'm going to read the Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel's statement. She said, Joe Biden and Democrats want to raise taxes during a recession. Biden lied, denied, and deflected the blame for skyrocketing prices and the and recession they created. I do think, Ryan, um, that from cinema's perspective, this this framing is not helpful mm -hmm. to Democrats. And that's something, if it builds and becomes, if that gets traction um, with voters, that line that this is on the same day that we have numbers showing we've basically entered a recession, Democrats are passing $380 billion of spending, which as the mansion got the name changed to the Inflation Reduction Act, so whether or not it's inflationary is a different question, it would raise taxes, whether or not you think those taxes are uh, just or otherwise. And I think it's interesting that the CHIPS bill was passed on the same day that this, this deal was announced. I keep saying bill was passed. This deal was announced. Um, and the CHIPS bill is interesting because it talks about how much labor has been offshored and how much manufacturing has been offshored. It tries to ad address that in semiconductor manufacturing for in the interest of national security. Um, Republicans have said, you know, cited the Reagan line that uh, spending, defense spending isn't spending whatever the actual, I was paraphrasing it, but that it's not a budgetary concern, basically, I think is the line. Um, but at the same time, raising corporate taxes is what sent a lot of those jobs overseas. And these are serious in the first place, because labor is cheaper and in some very unethical ways and in some ways that are ethical. There are reasons that it's, it's uh, people have gone elsewhere. I think we should have strong middle class jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs in this country. There's no question about it. I think we need to bring a whole lot of them back. Um, I do think there's something to be said for passing corporate tax hikes while you're trying to bring jobs back to the United States. Um, I, I have no pity at all for the corporations, but for the workers, this does affect that. Um, and so this is kind of an interesting confluence of events culminating on a late Thursday in July. Yeah, yeah I, I think Democrats would have two decent rebuttals to that. One would be and this goes to another piece of the, the legislation, they, they've created a 15%, and this is the corporate tax increase that she's referring to, a 15%, basically alternative minimum corporate tax, and it's global. Yep. And so if you want to offshore your, uh, you know, your manufacturing because you think you can dodge taxes in the United States, with this in place, that actually no, letter, no longer works. So you're still going to get hit with those same taxes. So if all things are equal, you could do your, your manufacturing here in the US and then there could be some subsidies in order to do that. On the messaging side, 
the timing is pretty good for Democrats in the sense that we're now in earnings season. And so you've already started to see oil companies. I think Valero was out yesterday uh, talking about how they basically made more than a billion dollars a month this last quarter. Uh, and you haven't even gotten yet to you know Exxon Shell and the other big boys. And these are going to make giant headlines where you're going to say where you're going to see over the last quarter, these companies making historic profits, 10, 20, 30 billion dollars. And so when Republicans say we can't raise corporate taxes because we're in a recession, Democrats be like, these guys have been gouging prices. Oil prices have come down more than gas prices have. And guess where the difference is? Hmm. The difference has gone in the pockets of these oil companies. We need to hit them with this win and they can call it a windfall tax. It's it, it's the thing that, uh, you know, Democratic operatives are saying is polling absolutely through the roof, taxing oil companies for their for their windfall profits. And so if they can slot into that frame, they'll have they'll have better luck. I think you're right that that cinema has said we can't raise taxes blah, blah, you know, like that. That is what she will try to do. We'll see if she has the kind of. Uh, you know, wherewithal or the or the willpower to stand up to uh, Democrats. Uh, let's see what what else we got. We haven't or, even got. Or if she the, thinks her voters uh, are buying that too, and that's her big. I mean, obviously that's her big mm -hmm. uh, incentive. I mean, any politicians, but that's her big concern in a, in a state she feels is fairly purple. Nobody seems to even be able to figure out if she's what what her <laughs> what she's concerned about because uh, she's you know in a swing state she has like completely torpedoed her support among Democrats to the point where, you know, she's probably yeah. going to get primaried by Ruben Gallego uh, and you know, very likely could lose uh, if she votes for it. You know, that could be the only thing that really, you know, takes some of the wind out of a, a Gallego primary challenge. And she's not up till 2024 anyway. Um, I mean, the, again, so I, the last piece, a, yeah. I, I do think there's a chunk of voters who yeah. really like this was going to be four trillion dollars. Then it was going to be two trillion dollars. And I do think with a, and that was with the recession looming. Um, mm -hmm. We knew the economy was not going in a great direction, even though Janet Yellen tried to downplay it and Biden himself tried to downplay it. Uh, people sensed that and there were, was plenty of evidence for it. So I do think there is a chunk of the electorate that would be grateful to Manchin and Cinema um, for getting winnowing it down to a more workable bill in this type of economy. Yeah. yeah, and and hey, maybe maybe that counts as this. Maybe the massive ambitions that they started with. Remember, I think uh, wasn't Bernie Sanders calling for like ten trillion and then six trillion. Yeah. Uh, so hey, Manchin is is the moderate here, bringing it down to. I guess the whole package is something like seven hundred, with you know counting the deficit reduction and. And all the other stuff. So hey, there you go. Call it call it a centrist, moderate, reasonable package, and and move on. And meanwhile, we're looking at the biggest climate investment the U.S. has has ever made, which we could talk about maybe in the next segment. We've gone a little long here. <laughs> we would go a little long. But you know what? This is a great this is a great transition into it because I feel similarly about the global minimum tax as I do about climate spending. So we'll we'll get to that <laughs> in a segment um, coming up soon. But any other final thoughts before we uh, transition, Ryan? No, but yeah, I say people should stick around for the next the next one because the the move that they pulled on McConnell, uh, I think, really lifts the mask off this mas this alleged master of the Senate. We, we sh you know, Ra Rachel Bovard has long been kind of saying that the, the McConnell emperor really wears no clothes; that he's not the brilliant strategist that that people uh, you know from left to right say that he is. And you know, if and he got massively snookered and outplayed. Uh, by Democrats here, and, and you know, we'll we'll talk about that later in the show. 
eagerly awaiting that discussion. So Emily, what's on your radar? Well, back when Meta was just Facebook, some people referred to it as the Facebook or Facebook.com back in the day, Mark Zuckerberg talked a lot about a long lost term he once called, quote, the social graph. Quote, people already have their friends, acquaintances, and business connections, he said back in 2007. So rather than building new connections, what we are doing is just mapping them out. This, quote, web of people's real world relationships, as Wired defined it at the time, was different than most social networks, the outlet noted. Sites like MySpace practically encouraged users to create new identities and meet and link to people they barely knew, Wired added. But Zuckerberg didn't care about using the internet to make new friends. That's from Wired. Facebook's specific goal was to add virtual connections to already existing connections, not create new virtual bonds where none previously existed. That was probably naive, sure, but it was better than what Zuckerberg announced just this week. Quote, one of the main transformations in our business right now is that social feeds are going from being driven primarily by the people and accounts you follow to increasingly also being driven by AI recommending content that you'll find interesting from across Facebook or Instagram, even if you don't follow those creators, Zuckerberg said on an earnings call this week. Right now, he added about 15% of content in a person's Facebook feed and a little more than that of their Instagram feed is recommended by our AI from people, groups, or accounts that you don't follow. We expect these numbers to more than double by the end of next year. Zuckerberg carefully added, quote, our strategy isn't about public versus social content and interaction. It's about enabling a flywheel that compounds both. So he's taking a company that was originally predicated on connecting us with people we knew and changing it into a company that intentionally increasingly connects us with people we don't know. In his announcement this week on that earnings call, Zuckerberg clearly indicated that this was a response to market demand, explicitly invoking the success of Instagram's Reels, which of course are very similar to TikTok. So where's this market demand coming from? Facebook's user base is aging, we all know that, and teenagers seem less interested in virtual public socializing. As Zuckerberg noted, Meta likes Reels because people tend to direct message them to friends privately. That's the flywheel he was talking about. So why does this distinction matter? We're not meant to connect instantly with people on the other side of the world. This new reality is completely warping our person-to-person -person incentive system. To be fair, social networks are not without benefits. They have plenty of those. Crowdfunding saves lives. Viral posts can raise awareness of problems on an incredible scale. New media can bypass corrupt gatekeepers and bring accurate reporting to the public. That's what we do here. PTAs can organize easily. People meet their spouses and make friends. Cold cases get solved. But when we interact in geographically organized communities, the stakes for good and bad behavior are significantly higher, and there's a greater sense of accountability. If you call someone a slur in the local newspaper or even the local bar, you've just disgraced yourself in front of people in your community, people who know your boss or your parents or live in the same neighborhood or just drink at that same bar all the time. Alternatively, if you make a good point in the local newspaper or the local bar, you've just reflected well on yourself in front of people in your community. If you look good at a bar and not just in a Facetune picture on an Instagram feed for your scattered friends from college to comment on, that's a stronger incentive, for instance, this is just one example to take care of yourself, stay in shape. 
These incentives are natural and much healthier. They encourage us to do good and discourage us from doing bad based on the expected judgments of people around us. The detachment, anonymity, and global reach of social networks are kicking American communities when they're already down. When deindustrialization, pornography, divorce, recessions, opioids, everything is ravaging, ravaging so many localities. We invest in physical reality more when we aren't under the illusion we can escape it. When San Franciscans are constantly incentivized to weigh in on snippets of what's happening in public schools in Kentucky and vice versa, we are only making the country worse. When adults with zero local ties can reach out to teens in other parts of the country on TikTok and quietly engage in inappropriate discussions with those children, the distance makes it harder to be disgraced in front of people whose opinions matter in your everyday life. The shame stings less when you don't have to feel it at a barbecue. So as Brett Weinstein once said, the greatest threat to humanity is unprecedented levels of evolutionary novelty. Zuckerberg basically wants to profit off of making that problem worse. I'm going to read another quote from Weinstein because I think it's worth considering in full. Here it is. Think about the fact that when President Kennedy was shot, every American who was old enough to understand what happened had a very personal relationship with his death, to the point where most were triggered into a state of very real and presumably psychologically measurable grief. Why would the death of a stranger cause these physical manifestations of grief? In some sense, this person had been a living, speaking guest in almost all of their living rooms. It felt very much, therefore, like they'd lost a family member. This was a level of evolutionary novelty that was already spectacular long before we got to the era of deep fakes, anonymous Twitter accounts and sock puppets operated by people who want to shift our collective conversational dynamics. We have layer upon layer of novelty, and today we are in an era of hyper-novelty. The rate of change of the novelty we face is so fast that it has outstripped our evolutionary capacity to keep up. That's all from Weinstein. Again, there's good and bad associated with most technologies. Humans have the capacity for good and evil, and our creations reflect that. Technology helps us overcome the limitations of nature in some very good ways, like for instance, irrigation. There are benefits to the Facebook of 2007 and even the Facebook of 2022, but do they outweigh the disadvantages? The questions of censorship and election interference are important ones, but they're much easier for people like Zuckerberg to answer than more fundamental inquiries about the ethics of his technology itself. As we sit here, Zuckerberg is devoting his vast resources to developing the metaverse, which he claims, quote, enables deeper social experiences where you feel a realistic sense of presence with other people no matter where they are, whether you're playing games or working for hours at a time, or you're just jumping in for a minute to, at a time to say hi to a friend or collaborate on a project quickly. Given some of the product and business constraints we face now, said Zuckerberg on the same earnings call, I feel even more strongly now that developing these platforms will unlock hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions, over time. This is obviously a very expensive undertaking over the next several years, but as the metaverse becomes a more important part of how we live from our social platforms and entertainment to work in education and commerce, I'm confident we're going to be glad we played an important role in building this. So there, he's telling investors the metaverse will be lucrative, and he's arguing it'll help us forge, quote, deeper connections. It will likely be lucrative, but it will only keep us numb, sedentary, and alienated from the people around us whose physical presences motivate us to live healthier lives. When he predicts the metaverse is going to become important in every part of how we live, from social platforms, entertainment, work, education, and commerce, that gives us the control to stop him. After two decades of social media and two decades of Zuckerberg, leaders in offices and schools and churches and government should recognize these products are hurting us more than they're helping, and technology 
is not always the same as progress. Ryan, the politics are in that last part. Zuckerberg is saying that he's preparing right now to build up a metaverse that infiltrates education, commerce, um, social media, every, part of our everyday lives. And uh, that gives you know, people in leadership positions, employers, uh, civic leaders, the, you know, that's going to be on them, whether they want to import this technology into their workplace. Lawmakers, um, do you want to normalize this? Do you want to incorporate it? Um, and it seems to me Zuckerberg would rather have us talking about censorship, would rather have us talking about uh, censorship or election interference than about some of these deeper questions. But maybe I'm off on that. And so Zuckerberg, what, what's he trying to do, like get Oculus headsets to like teachers and, other, and administrators and other people so they start having meetings yeah. in virtual reality? Is that, is, that his, is that his game? Is that how he's trying to basically like, kind of insinuate the metaverse into the real verse? Yeah, and, and churches, like people normalize people going to church over that. And um, mm -hmm. he wants to do it really quickly. And basically what Zoom did during the pandemic, I think is the idea mm -hmm. for how, you know, there, there's a, a version of Zoom in the metaverse where you just go into a meeting room and suddenly you're all meeting there. And if you normalize that technology, everyone has the Oculus headset, everyone has subscriptions to the metaverse uh, programs and software. And thus it has been insinuated into commerce, as he says. Mm hmm. So have you, have you, ever, you ever done the virtual reality, the Oculus thing or any oh, of the yeah. other? Yeah, I have an Oculus. I'm, I made fun of uh, my friend for having an Oculus and tried it on and within 10 minutes had bought my own because the technology is so captivating. Um, mm -hmm. But that's also why I, I mean, that's particularly yeah, why no. I think it's very, very dangerous. You've tried one, I, I'm I assume. Yeah, I, I took uh, the kids to Hershey Park uh, this summer and they had a thing for like 15 bucks you could you could do this and you know i had i had kind of avoided slash resisted it up on up until then and i was like let, let me let me try this and and i had the same experience that you did because i i did it with with one of my kids first and then i brought the other kids it's like you you gotta you gotta see this it's wild like yeah you, know, you put it on and you're like in another world like i yeah. looked over at my my daughter and she had turned into an alien uh it looked like it <laughs> like she looked like an alien and we're like and we're shooting other aliens and, uh, you know, fly, flying through tunnels. It was it was absolutely kind of, uh, like wild how how realistic it felt. And, and I could instantly, you know, see, you know, the way that you could you could, you know, imagine the world kind of gravitating toward a, a world that you can pr produce in the way that you want it rather than the real world, which you have to work much harder to produce in a, in a way that delivers, uh, you know, any, any semblance of joy for people. And so th it does have some real kind of dystopian elements, you know, shot through with this utopian kind of aspiration. Uh, so yeah, I don't like, well, you know, like, we, we think, we think this social media like fixation that we have now is bad. I can, I can only begin to imagine, you know, what, what a, a, a meta world would, would look like for our spirits. I'm also curious because you're you're in Vermont right now, and um, you're from you're, you're not from a big city. And even if you were from a big city, this is a relevant question. When you invest in your local community, 
you know, you're, you're physically invested in your local community. You spend time with people around you. The community, mm. the more people do that, we, we have research that shows the better off the community is um, the, the, because other people are invested in, in making it better. And so anything that continues to sort of eat away at those ties that connects us, like the new Facebook newsfeed is going to try to do, connects us to people on the other side of the world um, more than it connects us to the people around us, which Facebook originally tried to do, um, that seems to be also, and the, the metaverse will make that even worse, but that seems to be really scary too. As, as you were just quoting a wise person saying that our relationships are a raincoat in life's storm, uh, which has, you know, some kind of Confucian, <laughs> yes, your mom had forwarded an email to that effect, yes. uh, it, which has some real, con, you know, Confucian undertones and, and, and from a Confucian perspective, you know, you are your role in, in your relationships, you know, that, you know, there, there, there's a saying that's something like if you have one human, you, you actually have, have no humans. Like you, there have to be at least two people for there to be one, uh, because with, without each other, we're, we're nothing. Uh, and we're, and we're, we're defined by, you know, you know, our, our relationships and the roles that we play in them. And so if you strip that away, uh, then, then from that perspective, uh, you are, you know, quite literally stripping your humanity away and and replacing it with this completely artificial sense of rela sense of relationships, and that then you have f fundamentally changed what it means to be alive. It is it is thoroughly disturbing to me how absent that discussion is from our politics, especially for a company that is as politically active and a person who is as politically active um, as Meta and Zuckerberg are. It's just we just gloss over all of these much deeper, more ethical questions. We're just like slouching into this dystopia, um, like the frog in the pot of boiling water. You don't know that you're you're boiling till you're scalded, and we don't even. It's not anything in the political context. It's a blip on the radar. Yeah, and to, to like tweak the analogy a bit, it would be like if the if the boiling water kind of felt nice to the frog. You put those <laughs> goggles on, and you're like, "Whoa, this is kind of cool. This is Hot wild." Tub. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, and then the next thing you know, you're boiled to death. Right. right. <laughs> well, so. uh, on that grim note, uh, we, I'm, I'm looking forward to what is on your radar next. It's actually not grim for once. <laughs> A lot of people don't know this, but Ryan has some sort of technology called a radar that helps him keep track of current events. <laughs> right? What, what is on your radar today? We call this a radar. Do they do they even still use radar anymore? Um, so <laughs> my on my radar today is is Joe Manchin and and Emily. Emily, I know that over the last year and a half or so, you had a lot of doubts about good old Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And you were worried that perhaps the coal business that he owns might lead him to put personal profit in front of salvaging a verdant planet for future generations. But it seems like your doubts were misplaced. Joe <laughs> Manchin came through big time this week with one of the most stunning announcements of a deal in congressional history. Manchin, after all, had said that he was done with this bargaining, and yet here we are. Now, it could still all fall apart, but with Manchin on board, the House centrists have nowhere to run, and all Democrats need now is cinema and for everybody to get over COVID and show up to vote. But how Manchin and Chuck Schumer did this is quite a wild story, and it deals a huge blow to the myth that Mitch McConnell has built around himself as some kind of master of the Senate. So let's go back to June 30th, when McConnell got cocky and set all this in motion. He tweeted, let me be perfectly clear. There will be no bipartisan USICA as long as Democrats are pursuing 
a partisan reconciliation bill. Now, USICA is a bipartisan bill aimed at bringing semiconductor manufacturing capacity onto American shores because we finally realized that having China and Taiwan have a monopoly on the building blocks of the modern economy might not be such a great idea, especially as China eyes completely taking Taiwan over. Now, McConnell supports this CHIPS bill, but he was saying he'd tank it if Manchin didn't stop trying to cut a climate reconciliation deal with Schumer. Now, Manchin responded by saying it was, quote, so wrong for McConnell to make that threat, quote, I'm not walking away if anybody's going to threaten me or hold me hostage if I can help the country, he said. And if they want to play politics and play party politics, shame on them. So uh, Manchin added that it was, quote, so wrong that uh, of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky to issue threats to sink the bipartisan USICA legislation, which would boost federal investment on emerging technologies, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought at the time that McConnell was playing with fire here because Manchin nurses a grudge against Mitch for needlessly cutting him out of the Trump tax cut negotiations, as we reported at The Intercept, based on audio of a private meeting he held with no labels. So I actually wondered two weeks ago if McConnell might inspire Manchin to actually get a deal done by being such a jerk about the chips bill. After all, the threat is obscene. He's going to undermine U.S. competitiveness against China and vote against a bill he likes because he's mad about a different bill. But within days, days of that threat, Manchin announced he was walking away from the talks and he offered the White House a smaller deal instead. He would do, he would do prescription drug pricing reform and he'd extend Obamacare subsidies for a couple years, but that was it. The White House instantly took the deal. Now talks on the chips bill resumed, but Manchin was hammered for backing out of the climate deal with Democrats putting the collapse of the entire planet at his feet. The next day, he was telling a West Virginia radio station he wasn't really backing away. He just wanted to make sure that whatever he did didn't add to inflation. It's not clear when, but pretty soon, private talks with Schumer started up again. The new bill was named the Inflation Reduction Act because everything in it really does fight inflation. And Manchin had been roundly mocked for saying he walked away from the deal over inflation concerns. In a private meeting with Larry Summers, Summers let him have it. And Larry Summers doesn't sugarcoat things. That must not have been fun for Manchin. So on Wednesday, the Senate passed the CHIPS bill at 12.30 p.m. At 4.30, Manchin and Schumer announced their deal. How did Republicans respond? By taking out their fury on a bill that would expand health care coverage to veterans who got cancer from burn pits, a bill they had previously voted for overwhelmingly. And they never explained how it was the veterans' fault that Republicans got played. But John Stewart, who's been a genuine champion of veterans and first responders who've been cast off by our system, explained it here. America's heroes who fought in our wars outside sweating their asses off with oxygen, battling all kinds of ailments, while these mother sit in the air conditioning, walled off from any of it. They don't have to hear it. They don't have to see it. They don't have to understand that these are human beings. Do you get it yet? Do we see that these, are, these aren't heroes? These are men and women, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers that we just let stand outside in the heat Am I? when they can't breathe.
And later in that clip, he says, uh, if this is what we mean by America first, then we are screwed. He didn't say screwed. Uh, I think that this veterans bill will come back to the floor when uh, the temper tantrum is over and they will and they will pass it because I said they passed it something like 84, 85 senators voted for it the last time through it. There had to be some technical fix and then they then they tanked it because they were so furious. Uh, but I'm I'm curious where you stand on this this McConnell question. Are you in the Rachel Bovard camp that uh, that McConnell's uh, gen- so called genius has always been overrated and this kind of ex- exposes it, or do you think that uh, Democrats just outplayed a a good tactician and they just played a better game? I'm absolutely in the Rachel Bovard camp on almost everything, but uh, particularly on this. And it's hard to sort of say that in the context as somebody who's anti-abortion and is celebrating the decision in Dobbs and Mitch McConnell did um, obviously maneuver a bit to get the Supreme Court uh, majority as it is right now. That said, um, Rachel always talks about how McConnell gets a lot of credit for basically just being really good at doing nothing. Uh, And she says being good at doing nothing isn't exactly a skill. And what we're seeing here is when it requires some sort of skill, uh, this isn't the only test of Mitch McConnell's skills. I, I don't think he's a bad tactician. I think it's just this idea that he's cocaine Mitch, um, which goes back to that Don Blankenship uh, ad from years ago uh, that they sort of appropriated and turned into a joke that treated him as as some sort of hero. I think that's completely overrated. And this is a good example of just a a banal loss um, on something like, also, it wouldn't if McConnell is looking for an out on that bill, um, somebody whose wife's family has extensive business in China and a very good relationship with the Chinese government, that doesn't really surprise me either. So, I, I mean, I, did he get outmaneuvered here? Yeah, I think so. But how much did he actually want that legislation anyway, I think is an open question, too. And the irony here is perhaps if he'd have said nothing, uh, he'd have been in better shape. So. You know, in other words, if he would if he would not have kind of peaked uh, Joe Manchin, if he wouldn't have made that threat and he would have just allowed you know, Manchin and Schumer to continue their kind of hapless negotiations that had been going on for 18 months, it's possible that that would have, uh, you know, that that would have been a better result for Republicans. Instead, it might have actually galvanized Manchin a little bit to actually make a deal. And now Susan Collins is out saying that, Republicans are so angry about uh, getting humiliated here that they might not even vote to codify marriage equality anymore. And which I think is gonna be very hard to explain to people. Like we took an L and, and we're so sore about it that, that the Senate voted by, you know, let's say they do vote, Senate voted by a majority to pass something that we didn't like, uh, that now we're going to vote against things that we otherwise would support. Like, I don't, know how long uh, they can kind of rally public support behind that that explanation. Do you? No, that won't be a popular explanation at all. And it's (laughs) one of those interesting uh, sort of discrepancies between the machinations of Capitol Hill and how average people interpret it. And that makes it difficult for senators who want negotiating power, or members of Congress who want negotiating power, and like understand rightfully that it's important to be tough and to stand firm um, and say, you know, we're not going to be tricked or lied to, et cetera, even though they both do it to each other. They'll, and they know that. They know that. And Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer both know that they're pulling the rug out from each other, um, mm-hmm. pulling, pulling the rug out from under each other whenever they have the opportunity. It's just a, it's a gentleman's agreement. Uh, but 
that to normal Americans, it's just frustrating, exasperating games. Um, and mm -hmm. nobody has any patience for that right now when we are in a recession and dealing with all kinds of different problems across the board. Um, it's just nobody is going to have patience for that excuse whatsoever. Yeah. And, and maybe if I'm going to give points to Republicans here, it would be it's admirable the way that they always seem to behave as if they're in the majority. Like Dem Democrats, even when they control the House, the Senate and the White House, are often oftentimes act like they're actually in the minority, just kind of throwing their hands up and being like, well, that darn filibuster or, gee, uh, you know, the, the parliamentarian would we'd really love to do these things, but we just can't. Whereas Republicans, even when they're in the minority, you know, have the hospitals say, no, we're calling the shots here, which McConnell did there, just comes straight out and says, you, the majority, are not going to do a climate reconciliation bill. And if you do, then you're also you're not going to do this chips bill, which is just kind of impressive. <laughs> like, uh, now, it didn't it, it backfired this time on him, but the, the, the sense that he has of, of his own power uh, as as somebody like watching, you just have to be like, wow, where's where's this guy get the idea that in the minority you you get to you get to call all these different shots if you don't want to do a, a climate reconciliation bill, then you take take the majority of the Senate and and then you, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and at the same time, though, Schumer never agreed. Manchin flatly rejected the deal. So, right. you know, told him you don't you don't call the shots here. Like you don't right. tell us what we can do and what we can't do. And so that's what makes the victimization that came later, the, the sense of betrayal that came later, so much funnier. Because there was no betrayal because there was no deal. Yeah, know, McConnell yeah. like made a demand, the demand was rejected, and then later when the demand was not met, he's like, this is an outrageous betrayal. Yeah, they, they sort of foolishly tweaked the notoriously fragile mansion and then sincerely <laughs> seemed to be um, seemed to be in a sense of disbelief that the rug was pulled out from under them, which is absurd. I mean, they really seem to think that this maneuver had been successful. Um, and that they had I mean, it's just it, it all looks very it looks very bad uh, from the perspective of the, the master tactician. Yeah, and they could have learned from the progressive caucus that you know, yes, held up the exactly. infrastructure bill for so long, and, and he was like, "Fine, I'm walking away." Yeah, a hundred percent. I was thinking that while you were talking. Yeah, yeah they like, should have. Mitch, Mitch, cocaine Mitch should have talked to AOC. <laughs> yeah, AOC would have would have told him, "Hey, just sit back and just let this guy do what this guy's going to do." It's this impossible. Schumer guy, you, you yes. can't really trust him. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Amazing. <sighs> Well, well, here we are. So we'll see where it goes. Here we are. Here we are. We'll be back also with. Times. What? What was that, Ryan? No, just uh, we're, we're, these are these are some interesting times. These, that's for sure. Well, it's always interesting when you have 50-50, uh, basically, in the Senate, when you have mm -hmm. the, like, such a close balancing act, the way they interact with each other. It's just it, it's fascinating from the perspective of people who are interested in politics, but um, often sort of frustrating in the, the Madisonian sense, watching our, our government try to work. <laughs> indeed, indeed. joined now by senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and senior fellow at the Steamboat Institute, also a senior contributor at The Federalist, Kelsey Bolart. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. 
You reported out a absolutely heartbreaking story uh, for IWF, and we have the first, it's, it's a video, it's about nine minutes long, people can watch it on YouTube. It's the first part in a series you're doing called Identity Crisis, about the consequences of the mainstreaming of extreme transgender ideology around the country uh, through various channels, whether they are legal, social, cultural, and uh, th this video is very interesting. People should watch the whole thing. It's about a Chicago family. Uh, what we will play now for you, though, is, is the first uh, couple seconds of it. Mm. Oh, God. This sucks. My daughter's name is Sophia. Um, she's amazing. On July 22nd, 2019, she went to her dad's house for a regular custodial visit, and she never came back. I later found out that she had told her stepmom and her dad that she was trans and she didn't want to live with me anymore. She felt unsafe. I miss my daughter's 13th birthday, her 14th birthday, and her 15th birthday. Hmm. All right, Kelsey, that's the perspective of Jeanette Cooper, who you profile here and you talk to extensively. Um, some of the basics in the story were included in that video that started when the daughter was 12 in 2019. Can you tell us uh, just the facts of what's happened to Jeanette? Absolutely. This is a devastatingly tragic story of a Chicago mother who lost custody of her young daughter, whom she loves unconditionally uh, because she insists that her daughter is a girl. As you mentioned, this started when the daughter was 12. Um, the daughter's mother and father had divorced a couple of years prior. Jeanette Cooper had custody amicably seven nights, six days a week prior to that. Once her daughter decided that she was transgender and wanted to live with her father and stepmother, the daughter claimed she was unsafe. And what we're seeing is uh, this idea of, of, of a child being unsafe, which traditionally means there's some evidence of abuse or neglect on behalf of one of the parents, uh, be weaponized uh, to, to essentially be used to separate um, a mother from her daughter. And so the court did an extensive investigation because that is what a court needs to do if any child claims they are unsafe. Um, it took seven months. Jeanette Cooper, as hard as that was, she understood that the court needed to investigate. Uh, according to my what I um, referenced in my reporting, there was no evidence of abuse or neglect in this relationship. Jeanette is an incredibly loving mother, uh, cares about her daughter deeply. What the court uh, eventually uh, accused Jeanette of is uh, needing to further her understanding of a transgender identity. Jeanette will tell you she has an understanding of a transgender identity, but it is not the understanding that the court and all these institutions surrounding her want her to have. And so the end result of this is a mother who has been physically and emotionally separated from her daughter for three years. The only way she is allowed to communicate with her daughter is via postal mail. And Jeanette will tell you, people who are in prison have more communication with their children than she does. It is wrong, and what is she? What is she, she is being forced to do is choose between lying to her child or having a relationship with her. Hmm. I, mean, I think one thing we can probably all agree on is that nothing gets uh, messier uh, than than custodial fights between parents over over children. 
uh, and anything that can be weaponized in those fights will will be weaponized. Uh, what 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 were you able to find out from the perspective of the child and from the perspective of the the child's child's father? Because you want to, obviously you want to see this from all all different. Because you you know when when you go into these custody fights and you hear from one side, it always seems pretty pretty black and white, and then you hear from the other side, and that seems black and white from that side. <laughs> Absolutely, and I want to be clear through my reporting. This was for Independent Women's Forum. Uh, this I was telling the mother's story, um, and uh, what I did in 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 doing that was dig through many, many court documents where I could see very specifically what the father was alleging. And, you know, essentially in the court documents, the father was speaking for uh, his daughter. And, you know, again, it was very clear the daughter wanted to be in her father's custody. And they were using this idea of her feeling unsafe around her mother in order to make that happen. And what Jeanette will tell you is that her daughter is essentially being allowed to parent herself. Um, at just 12 years old, she's being allowed by these court systems to make these major decisions such as cutting off her mother from uh, having any relationship uh, with her. And we know with a lot of these children who face identity crises, uh, they eventually grow out of them. In fact, uh, I, I do know from the daughter's public appearances, we did not publish her last name. Of course, we want to protect her privacy. She is a minor. Um, but we know, I, I know through uh, what I was able to see, knowing her last name, uh, she has actually changed her identity. Um, she appears to no longer identify as a boy. She identifies um, as Z, Zer, Zim. And so this mother lost custody of, of her daughter for you know, not understanding her daughter's transgender identity, but it appears her daughter isn't quite sure uh, what her identity is. And it is very much a fluid and evolving situation. Um, and, and you know, it's it's just tragic that this mother, you know, can't, can't even uh, text or call her daughter. She lives 10 minutes away, but can't even see her. And what I, I really want everybody to know is this mother does not blame her daughter. Um, she loves her daughter unconditionally. And in fact, she believes her daughter is the greatest victim in this whole situation. You know, I was curious about what Ryan said as well. Um, and it was interesting because, Kelsey, you were on Federalist Radio yesterday talking about this. Um, it was interesting to learn that in the court documents, this is the contention that's, that is being made from their perspective. And what's interesting about that, actually, what's really sad about that is this dichotomy that unless you fully understand in the perspective, uh, from the perspective of the left, the transgender ideology, so unless you fully support the transition of a 12-year-old, um, not, not, we're not talking about medically, we're talking about socially, whether you fully support that, um, if you do not, you are thus unsafe. So Jeanette, uh, I'm assuming, is not you know, some sort of Republican activist or longtime conservative or Christian fundamentalist, um, but she disagrees with the full sort of ideology of transgenderism as it was applied to her 12-year-old daughter. And thus, she's not merely a parent who disagrees. She is somebody who is deemed unsafe. And the interesting thing here is that that was injected to the point where a family court agreed with that interpretation. Absolutely. And 
that's important to note, you know, this starts with what people think is kindness, using the quote unquote correct pronouns uh, at a preschool. But where does this end? Where does this path go? It ends with a mother losing custody of the daughter she loves. Um, it, it is a very traumatic situation for the mother. Again, uh, you know, as hard as it is for her, she will tell you that her daughter is really the greatest uh, victim in this whole thing. But it, 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 <laughs> we are at a point in society where these terms like unsafe are being weaponized uh, by the left in order to further this ideology that ultimately is harming children. The daughter might think this is the best, best situation for her now. I think there's few people on either side of the aisle who would, uh, who would support the notion that a child being separated from her biological mother with no evidence of abuse or neglect is actually best for that child. But this culture of political correctness has really uh, enabled the courts to, uh, to uh, you know, allow this situation to unfold the way it has. And of course, this is in a very liberal area, Chicago, uh, where the therapists and uh, the communities surrounding them are all following this affirmation only model uh, where they do believe that if a parent is not uh, fully on board with affirming a child's identity, they are unsafe to be around that child. And so as crazy as this situation sounds, it is actually the natural conclusion of this entire gender ideology movement. Hmm. So are you saying that if Jeanette had affirmed the, the gender identity of her child, that this wouldn't have happened, that she would have maintained custody? And, and is, that, is that what the court documents say? What's the evidence uh, for that? Or, or were there lots of different things going on and this became one kind of cudgel or weapon you know in a, in a in a more expansive fight ultimately what the court documents uh say is you know this is really the reason the mother does not no longer has custody of her daughter no longer has visitation rights and so forth but i think it's important to note that early on uh, after the daughter went to her father's house and refused to come home in an act of desperation, Jeanette actually did uh, try to affirm her daughter. She wrote this um, very emotional letter saying, I, I want to know more about this, um, you know, using the daughter's chosen name. I think, you know, despite that going against her beliefs, I, I, I'm a mother. I think many of us would be tempted to do the same, um, you know, it, it just, so that we could have contact. So, with, with our daughter. So there's a lot more forces at play. Again, I think this is really sad because it's, it's ultimately a custody battle between two parents. In the final parenting agreement, it does allow for ways for Jeanette to see her daughter that requires her to attend certain therapy sessions. Um, one of the therapists that she's required to meet with, however, that her wait list is full. And so Jeanette is really at a roadblock, but it's notable that uh, the other path um, that could enable Jeanette to see her daughter is simply her ex-husband agreeing to allow parenting time. And thus far, that has not happened, despite Jeanette living just 10 minutes down the street from them. And I think to Ryan's point, um, it, it's sad if this is being, like, it, whether or not this is the primary reason or one that's merely being weaponized, it is, a, I think, a really sad state of affairs that the child's gender identity, and if the gender dysphoria in this case is, is very real, it's extremely There's no sad. evidence. 
there's right. actually no evidence uh, that the child has ever been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, which yeah. I think is another important detail. It's extremely important because we've seen plenty of evidence that social contagion is at play in these cases with young girls, especially at that age. So, but, but the point is either way, the fact that this gender identity question can be wielded um, as a cudgel in custody battles is really sad. Uh, Kelsey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. So the Biden administration is getting hit with questions about whether or not we are in a recession and is getting criticized for not just flatly admitting that we are. Uh, Wikipedia uh, is getting accused of editing the definition of a recession. Uh, That that seems to have been a bit of clickbait. And we want to get into what happened uh, with that because that's not exactly what happened, but something did happen. Uh, But first, I want to actually question the underlying assumption here that Democrats ought to be saying that we're not in a recession and Republicans ought to be celebrating that we are. Hmm. And and here's why, because if I, so I think the Biden administration, if I were advising them, I'd say, yeah, yeah, we're in, we're in a recession uh, because that then sends a signal to the Fed that it's time to quit tapping the brakes on this economy, that, that the next time that the Board of Governors meets, there should not be any more in- interest rate increases because if they continue to pump the brakes on the economy. We will plunge much deeper into a recession if you believe that we're in one. And if the, if they don't, then these two quarters of negative growth could be the last two quarters uh, of negative growth. And you could see an upswing, uh, it, perhaps in time for the midterms, but certainly in time uh, for the general election. So I actually think they're missing the, the long and medium term benefits of acknowledging recession by kind of clinging to uh, the, the short term pain that they feel like they might be able to avoid. What do you, what, what's your read? You know, that's a really good point, and I think it's because of the election year. Um, and that's, that's the best explanation that I can come up with for that. Um, and what Ryan's TV was just doing was in the office where they watch the screensaver to see if it'll ever fit neatly into the corner. The Samsung logo was like bouncing around. I was so excited for that. Uh, but you fixed it. Anyway, but my assumption is that they, they are avoiding it because they don't want to be uh, hit with the stench of a recession president um, in a year where they're already mm-hmm. frustrated about how the midterm cycle seems to be shaping up. Um, and I was reading Nellie Bowles's uh, newsletter for Common Sense, Barry, Barry Weiss's Substack this morning. And to this point, she had an interesting kind of uh, concise encapsulation of what's happening. She says, the media is ready to go carrying the administration's water. Here's the Associated Press. Quote, by one common definition, the economy shrinking for consecutive quarters, the US economy is on the cusp of a recession, yet that definition isn't the one that counts. Um, She goes and talks about the Wikipedia example. She says, the economic historian Phil Magnus posted on Facebook about the White House word games with recession and got a warning tagging it as, quote, false information and adding a fact check. So propaganda and media have obviously, this is not new, the confluence of you know, government propaganda attempts and, and media kind of running with them um, when it serves their purpose and their ideology and their business, whatever uh, it happens to be at that particular moment. Um, but I feel like we're kind of in Orwell's world that he wrote about in politics in the English language, where we've gotten to a point where it's just like we don't agree on and anything and the only people that benefits are the people in power um and it's much different than you know the the war propaganda bad as it has been for decades it's it seems to be creeping into absolutely every single aspect of our politics and our lives 
Yeah, and I think words that we even used to all commonly agree on the definition of uh, are are kind of losing losing their meanings as people contest them, you know, from the from the right and the left for their for their own advantage. But it's also true that whether you know that that this is a tricky one. That first of all, GDP is an insanely inexact number. You're you're literally trying to measure the output of a an entire you know multi-trillion-dollar economy, like pre- with with the kind of precision that would then enable you to say that you know, it's in a recession or it's it's not in a recession. So some of it is just, you know, is fundamentally contested. And so this kind of Wikipedia uh, edit actually, you know, has some merit to it. That th- This is a contested claim. Now, Dean Baker, who's a kind of liberal economist, um, has been actually making an argument that it's absurd to say that we're in a recession. And, and here, here's here's the argument that that he makes. He said, yes, if you want to go by uh, two two quarters of negative growth, fine, like there's, there are two quarters of stated negative growth. We'll see if there are revisions or whatever. Uh, what, what he points out is that there was this tweak. There, there's been, there have been tweaks to inventories. And so because of the, a slowing rate of growth in inventory accumulation, that knocked 2.01 percentage points off of the uh, off of the quarter's growth. There's still been there's still been growth in it, but not at the not at the inventory accumulation rate that it was at before. It has to do with supply chains, you know, e- easing up. Uh, and so, with a 0.9 percent decline, you know, 2.01 percent moves it from uh, positive uh, to negative. And then you also have uh, you know decline in residential construction that he sa- he says knocked 0.71 percent off off GDP. I think that that's fair. Like if residential uh, housing is going down, you should knock it off. But so if you take if you if you take away that two percentage points from this weird tweak in inventories and the tweak in inventories, he argues, is actually economically a a, a good sign. Uh, you get this weird uh, confluence where a, a good thing happening in the economy actually winds up knocking two percentage points off GDP growth that, that moves it then under zero, which then says gets people saying, well, we've now had two uh, two quarters of negative growth. And so therefore we're in a recession. You know, he, he went through the rest of the, the growth and found I'll just look at look at some of it here. Consumption grew uh, at one percent. The savings rate was up. It uh, the rate of inflation was down now down. It was at five point two percent last quarter. Now it's at four point uh, a four point four percent annual rate, which is still above the target, but which is which is coming down. Uh, investment uh, investment was up. It was so lots of interesting good signs in the in the economy. Uh, the number that that spits out is 0.9 percent down. Uh, and so then we all then tangle over whether or not. Well, can we say that we're in a recession at this point? That's why the Wikipedia I have a completely like contrarian take on this Wikipedia controversy as we're talking about it. Um, if anything, and, and Wikipedia does have some formalized processes in the editing, um, mm-hmm. but if anything, this sort of communal group approach to editing, granted they locked it, and that wasn't a communal decision, that was a, a Wikipedia decision, I, you know, I think that's suspect. But 
um, the idea that you have the sort of online community working on the definition because when you have the definition of a recession being one that is not concrete um, and is not particularly well outlined uh, with boundaries we all agree on, uh, it, it, it's the opposite from my perspective. It's like how the internet is supposed to work, that it's this kind of collaborative place where instead of having the government decide what the definition of a recession is, we can sort of hash it out. Um, but then Wikipedia came in and, and locked it and said the previous iterations of the article were false, um, which is, again, that's another decision. That is a more centralized decision. It's not organic. Uh, but to, to your point, people don't give a damn what the formal uh, economist definition, economist approved mm -hmm. definition of a recession is. They know they're feeling it. You know, they, they're feeling it in their bank accounts. They're feeling it um, when they go to pay bills right now. And But it, what you're saying is that the definition of a recession um, actually does matter because it matters in, in terms of how the Fed approaches uh, its various mechanisms, which is, I think, really frustrating uh, from the perspective right. of, you know, regular people in the country. Right. And and my big fear is that uh, the, the Fed will, you know, push us beyond, you know, will push interest rates uh, so high that they will, uh, you know, do what they did kind of in the early 2000s and drive the economy into a needless recession. And and for people who haven't uh, lived through those as as professionals, you know, they are, uh, you know, they, they, they make you nostalgic for the awful, terrible economy that, that we have that in booming in booming times uh, that when you have, you know, six, seven people, uh, you know, hunting for every job opening rather than, uh, you know, a two job openings for every job searcher. Uh, your your life becomes a lot more miserable at home and at work because you get you you get treated a lot worse at work. Uh, your your ability to form into a union, you know, we're, we just saw what Trader Joe's former union in Massachusetts, uh, Trader Joe's store in Massachusetts former union. All 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 of that action, all of that progress, is is fueled by a tight labor economy, and that and the 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 elites would not like nothing more to have a much looser one where where people are are fighting each other. Uh, you know, for for scarce jobs, and so that that's why I think that Democrats or, uh, or progressives, at least, and, and populists, should be like, okay, fine, yeah, we're in a recession, chill out, Fed. Yes, we're in a recession, even if the numbers don't necessarily reflect that. Like, and also, for instance, like consumption of services, like we're moving people as the economy is opening up, more and more people are are getting back into services and getting away from all of the stuff that they've been buying on Amazon. You know, during the pandemic. So much of our economy moved away from bars and restaurants and coffee shops and those sorts of things. That so much spending went into buying th buying things that it that it really broke. You know, supply chains combined with the labor shortage and combined with people not being able to show up for work because they were dying or because they had had COVID. So last quarter, consumption of services rose at a 4.1 percent annual rate, and hotel and restaurant spending rose at a 13.5 percent annual rate. And so, you know, these are things that have to be taken into context with the with the negative rates that, that you see kicked around as well, because inventory is going down is actually probably a good thing because it means the economy is balancing out again. And if inventory is going down are the thing that tipped the number into recession territory, then you have to wonder what kind of value that that number has on an analytical basis. 
Yeah, it's interesting because one thing that you know hosts and cable news and uh, successful journalists have, they all have health care, they all have 401ks, and they feel the economy extremely different than other people do. And the media's coverage of the recovery from the Great Recession, I think, reflected that. Some of the coverage of the Trump economy, I think, reflected that as we had that bifurcated situation uh, where the stock market was going up and up and up. Mm. Um, but if you didn't have money in the stock market, you were experiencing something very different. And that affects the way they cover these stories, I think, immensely. Um, so, you know, more information from my perspective and, and more debate over it is, is only a good thing. But it, it is, I think, always very interesting to watch how the administration takes economic, or the, how the media takes economic talking points uh, from various administrations. And, and before we go, have we put up the Wikipedia before and after? Because we can, uh, if, if we haven't, let's let's put that up now. Then some people can people can pause the. You know, people can pause the video and, and compare and contrast whether they think that this warrants the outrage that some are, you know, are throwing at, at Wikipedia. I don't actually think so, because they're they're both one is saying that in the UK, uh, two quarters of negative growth is a recession. And in the US, here's the NEBR definition. And the other basically says the same thing, just moving the words around. I think it's interesting that it got locked because, you know, that. That that does show you that even Wikipedia is losing faith in the public to, you know, to just contest these ideas in a good faith intellectual way. But I but I don't think it's fair to say that the the edit was necessarily made, uh, you know, makes it more favorable to to the Biden administration. Yeah, and you know, Wikipedia has gotten increasingly politicized, and you know has has given up on I think what its original mission was to some extent. Um, but that doesn't mean I mean the the benefit of Wikipedia is that there's still transparency, um, and you can at least mm -hmm. see which which direction that it's going in. So mm -hmm. on that note, uh, that, as Ryan said, yeah, you, as Ryan said, you can you can pause and compare the screenshots uh, back and forth and, and see for yourself. California has an opportunity to put a minimum wage increase on the ballot this November, but Democrats are standing in the way so far. Joining us now is Joe Sandberg, who's a leading backer of the push to raise the wage in California. Joe, welcome to Rising. Thanks for having me. And so, so can you lay out the, the situation? I know that you guys are, have been uh, pushing to get this on the ballot and you know by the time you get petitions done and everything else it would be 2024 when uh the the, the when it could actually be uh, decided by voters but there is a way to get it on the november ballot how difficult is that and what would need to happen for uh california voters to get a chance to raise their their minimum wage well first let's set the stage the living wage act is officially and constitutionally qualified for the 2024 ballot. So that's the farthest out parameter. If we move it though to 2022, it's gonna mean two years of additional wage increases for 5 million people. So what's at stake, whether it's in 2024 or 2022, is literally tens of billions of dollars a year for two years for 5, billion, uh, 5 million California workers. So the stakes couldn't be higher. But I want to just establish we are qualified for the 2024 ballot. And here's how we get on the 22 ballot. The governor, Gavin Newsom, can call a special election. The law is clear that he has the executive authority to call a special election for a ballot proposition that has already been constitutionally qualified for a future election. 
So it's a crucial predicate to know that because we're qualified for 2024, that triggers the governor's executive authority as defined by California's constitution to call a special election for voters to vote on that already qualified proposition sooner. So the governor has the authority to call a special election in November and do what's called consolidate that special election into the general election already occurring in November. So in sum, the governor absolutely has the constitutional authority to put the Living Wage Act and the ability for voters to vote on an $18 minimum wage on the November 22 ballot. And I wanna close that by reinforcing that this is the will of the voters. And here's how we know it's the will of California voters. First, over 1 million Californians, over 1 million registered voters in California signed a petition to put this on the 22 ballot. Second of all, elected county registrars were qualifying signatures with the intention to qualify it for the 22 ballot. And finally, 73% of Californians say they want to vote yes on it in 2022. So from those three angles, it's unambiguous. The will of Californians is that this be on the 22 ballot. You know, it was, it's, it's interesting because one of the parts of the labor market has been private businesses um, as they try to incentivize workers to come, you know, do all of these jobs, you know, have hiked wages on their own. And some of that has gone up um, just naturally with the market. And I'm curious as to how that is has politically interacted with the attempt to get this on the ballot. Is that also sort of, has that been a convenient maybe a talking point for the Newsom group as they think about, or the Newsom sort of team as they think about uh, passing something like this in this environment? Well, it's important to note that as inflation has accelerated, yeah. the popularity of raising California's minimum wage has grown by approximately 10 percentage points over the last nine months. And that with Tolchin and research, and Ben Tolchin's one of the best, most credible pollsters in the country, he's been surveying Californians now for about nine months on this matter, and the, the data is clear. As inflation worsens, public demand for a raise in the minimum wage has increased, and I think it's really worth unpacking that where we stand now with 73% of Californians supporting the Living Wage Act to raise the minimum wage to 18 bucks, this isn't a partisan issue anymore. Yes, raising the minimum wage is a progressive issue as a matter of values, but when you have 73% of people, even in California, yeah, we're a blue state, but we're not 73% blue. Nearly half of Republicans support this. And so just, just to be clear, uh, would Gavin Newsom need the legislature to consolidate this onto the November ballot or is, is this his constitutional authority on his own? No, he does not need the legislature. The California Constitution is unambiguous and clear. The governor of California has the executive authority to call a special election for a ballot proposition that has already been constitutionally qualified. So to be super um, clear and at risk of being redundant, because I think it's so important we all understand this, because we're qualified already for 2024, the governor's constitutional authority to call a special election is triggered. In some alternate reality, suppose that someone came up with a new ballot proposition and it weren't constitutionally qualified for a future election,
the governor couldn't just say, hey, I woke up this morning and I want to put a ballot proposition on through executive authority. It's only and specifically because we have already constitutionally qualified it for a future election that the governor has the constitutional authority to call a special election so that voters can vote on it sooner. Hmm. Now, actually, Senators Cotton and Romney, this was about a year ago, uh, here in Washington, D.C., at the federal level, uh, introduced a bill that would uh, raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. And, Joe, you mentioned Republicans. You mentioned that it's, it's not completely a partisan issue. And I'm curious as to whether any, uh, California Republicans are an interesting group. They're uh, uh, very different than uh, Republican, basically, teams in other states or you know Republican parties in other states. Has there been any interest uh, from California Republicans in this legislation? I know they talk a lot to small business leaders. Small business leaders are still hurting from the pandemic and might not be entirely favorable to something like this at that time. Um, but what's what's your experience been um, as you, you talk about these things? Well, first, let's debunk this idea that small businesses oppose a higher minimum wage. It's actually not true. It may be that certain lobbyist groups that are funded by dark money that say they represent small businesses claim that small businesses oppose it. But in real life, Small businesses support a higher minimum wage in California, and here's why. Number one, businesses do better when their customers have more money to buy their goods and services. And small businesses especially do better when customers have more money to buy goods and services locally. So when you put more money in the pockets of workers, small businesses prosper because their customers have more money to buy their products and services. Second of all, one of the dimensions of the workforce that is under-narrated is the competition for workers and the recruitment of workers. And in a tight labor market, businesses have to spend a lot of money to recruit workers. When you raise the minimum wage, you actually reduce the expenses that businesses have to incur to go and recruit workers. So actually, what those lobbyist groups funded by dark-headed money won't tell you is that minimum wage hikes actually reduce, reduce the costs to small businesses because it reduces the amount they have to invest to recruit workers by making the prevailing wage higher, which is fundamentally what draws workers in. And is that because more workers come into the job market when they hear about these higher wages or they work, they want to work more hours because of the higher wages? Is that why that is? Both. And I'm glad you mentioned working more hours because Raising the minimum wage is, is more than just raising the wage that minimum wage workers earn during an eight hour day. It also means that for workers who choose to work overtime, they're earning even more because depending on overtime laws in certain counties, you're earning double time, time and a half. It also raises the wages of workers who are earning above minimum wage because it raises the whole pay scale. Hmm. And Let's talk about the politics real quickly. We we talked about this last week on the show, and since then, uh, Representative Rokana, California congressman, came out and said Newsom ought to put this on the ballot. Has there been other other pressure on him? Is this is this a question that he's going to face either from Democrats in California or from the media there, or is he going to be able to just kind of skate and not have to answer this? Because I feel like if he has to make a decision the only decision that he can make that's politically sensible is to put it on the ballot. But if he can avoid making any decision at all, then he'll, then he'll one day becomes the next and he says, oh, it's too late. 
Right, this isn't going away. <laughs> the conversation about the minimum wage in California is permanently changed. Hmm. It's going to be $18. It's a question of when, not if. And I want to call out other leaders who've just been extraordinary profiles and courage here. As your audience may know, our ballot committee, the Living Wage Act, filed a lawsuit to compel the state to put this on the 22 ballot. And I was joined as a co-plaintiff in that lawsuit by a member of Congress, Nanette Barragan. And Congresswoman Barragan represents the fourth poorest district in California. And imagine the courage it took for her to be a co-plaintiff on a lawsuit against the state of California. In addition, Ada Bersenio, who's the chair of the Orange County Democratic Party and co-president of Unite Here Local 11, one of the biggest labor unions in the state, was also a co-plaintiff with me. And so it's an incredibly powerful statement when we have a, a citizen activist in me, a member of Congress in Nanette Barragan, and one of the most respected labor leaders and a chair of one of the largest county Democratic parties in the state in Ottawa together as a trio as co-plaintiffs. So this, this isn't going away. Um, it's just a question of when the minimum wage will be raised to $18, it's not if. Joe Sandberg, thank you so much for your perspective this morning. Thank you. Mark Perry of the American Enterprise Institute has updated a version of his popular chart that shows the divergence in prices of consumer goods over the course of the last 20 years. You can see here, these are price changes from January 2000 to June 2022. The reason this chart is popular is because it taps into, I think, something people sense just inherently as they go about their lives. These major price hikes are on essential services for the most part, hospital, college, college textbooks, medical care, uh, Childcare and food and beverage, housing, average hourly raises or average hourly wages. This is uh, these are things that have gotten more expensive over time. Um, whereas things that have gotten less expensive over time include cars, household furnishings, clothing, cell phone services, computer software, toys, and TVs. All right, Ryan, um, this is populism in a chart. I think uh, because you can talk about trade, you can talk about protectionism, you can talk about uh, subsidies. You can talk about uh, all of these different things. You can talk about government inaction. Um, and that's not to say this breaks down totally neatly, like for instance, wages going up and uh, you know, food and beverages going up and whether or not college is essential is an open debate, but elites certainly have pre presented it as something that is. But when you have things like hospital services, medical services, childcare, uh, housing all going up, while well, the things that go down are TVs, toys, uh, that's a, I think that's a statement on where we've gone over the last two decades. Do you agree? Yes, and and speaking of of populism, looking at this chart here, um, you know, if you notice, a lot of these, a lot of the things that have declined in price are you know manufacturing, uh, mm -hmm. are are the are, are the products of manufacturing, and so if you look at toys, TVs, uh, software, clothing, um, cars, you know, these are these are all things that since the '70s, but accelerating in the '80s, '90s, um, you know, feeding into this chart were things that were offshored. Uh, yes, you know, and, so that and that's interesting because wages lower have, labor. Yeah, uh, that's interesting because average hourly wages have increased as well. But if your if your hospital services and medical care services are going up as well, the, right. those wages are less. Uh, you, you feel the the increase there right. less. 
Right. The, the real wages, right, haven't haven't gone up because for, because they're getting sucked into those things that those charts that are that are above it. Uh, and and I think that, you know, say, you know, co college and, and food are like the, the great example that everybody, I think, who's lived through this time can understand, you know, in the early 2000s, if you went to Wendy's, you know, it was 99 cents for chicken nuggets. You go to Wendy's now, it's slightly more, but up until pretty recently, you know, 99 cents for chicken nuggets, you know, like barely any change, like, and that Taco Bell, McDonald's, like, you, you name, like all of these places, their, their value meals, whatever, stunningly, time would go on and they would stay at precisely the same rate. Yet uh, the price of college uh, over that exact same amount of time, you know, double, triple, quadruple, like just absolutely extraordinary explosion of of costs and then when you throw on top of that you know the medical expenses that that are put in here child care expenses and the others uh these these essentials are really you know draining draining people while you know hourly wages are going up by by just just a hair and not at all not at all keeping up with that and then we mollify people by saying well yeah but look you can get a cheaper tv like and we're keeping and we're keeping the price of food down and, and exactly you know in it in this chart, he well, food technically has gone to, up, but less than the other increases. Right, and he point he highlights the things that government subsidizes, uh, but actually, the government subsidizes average hourly wages um, by giving you know corporate welfare and and covering Medicaid for yep. for Walmart, and government also subsidizes food and beverage, like the farm bill and other mechanisms. Like it, it costs a lot more than five dollars to get one of those broilers. Well, to I was the, just going to say the grocery store and back back home to you. Well, yeah, I was just going to say. So John Arnold uh, did a, a a modification of this graph, which I don't know if we have the picture um, off the screen where he he said he highlighted items that were highly sub subsidized by the government. But that's mm -hmm. a pretty I think that's a pretty subjective measure. And I did want to get your take on that, Ryan, because uh, I have a hard time seeing how, for instance, new cars. We've seen subsidies in that industry, certainly to keep jobs here in the States. Um, I, I would imagine computer software, I guess that depends on how you're defining it. The, at least recently, there was just the chips legislation that we talked about earlier in the show that uh, is a big subsidy to, and I guess if they're talking about the software itself, that's a different question than the computer itself. Uh, but there, there are definitely subsidies that affect directly or significantly indirectly these various industries. So what do you make of the argument that prices have gone up for very, very subsidized industries like hospitals. I mean, these are these uh, places that have gone up are have some of the biggest lobbying uh, presences uh, in Washington D.C. When you talk about medical care and services, and when you talk about education, they they have big uh, lobbying presences. Right. So, but do you see this as an argument that subsidies um, can end up hiking prices and hurting the quality of the care? I don't because subsidies go both ways. So mm -hmm. everything on there is is subsidized. Like the the idea that the the U.S. you know as a matter of policy offshoring all of its manufacturing and then bringing those yeah. goods back at a cheaper price, uh, you know, by subsidizing a, a global trade environment that right. that enables that to happen. That that's not a subsidy doesn't doesn't make any sense. Like that is that is a subsidy. It's a subsidy in order to mollify you know working people so that they'll continue. You know, losing you know, losing ground when it comes to wages and and not get too frustrated. I think the other pieces that you're seeing, 
uh, I think education, I think, is is separate, and I think we largely agree on a lot of the, the price driving problems on that. But on healthcare, that's we're talking, you know, austerity, disinvestment, and and corporate concentration. There, we're allowing all of these different hospitals to be bought up by one or two companies. Uh, we're not building new hospitals. We're not investing in public competition against these private hospitals. And so that, and then, uh, you know, you're creating these these complicated private insurance middlemen. And then we're surprised when they just, you know, relentlessly uh, jack up prices. So I think it, it does show a complete breakdown of uh, of, the, of the market, and but also a complete breakdown of government investment in, in healthcare at the same time. Right. It shows complete capture, I think, by lobbying forces in some of mm -hmm. these various industries, which is where it gets frustrating, um, especially with some of these bills that just passed this week. Uh, the climate bill, for instance, I haven't looked through it. I don't know if the text is public yet, but I guarantee you there's crony capitalism in it, and it happens time and again. And that's mm -hmm. not to say it's avoidable. You know, I, I support industrial policies, in particular industries myself, even though it can, you run the risk of cronyism. Um, and I mean, you run a, run a very strong risk of cronyism. Sometimes it has to be done in order to provide basic services, uh, whether it's national security or uh, you know, medical care for your constituents. Um, but in this case, I think it's also, a, it does add a good bit of nuance to this idea that government funding is an easy Band-Aid. It's an easy Band-Aid for lawmakers because it's payouts to their backers um, that a lot of times aren't actually crafted in ways that is going to fundament fundamentally get at the heart of the problem. Education is a pretty good example of that. I think medical care is a really good example of that too. And it's why you and I can talk to Matt Stoller and all three of us are probably going to find a lot of agreement on this because it's crony yeah. capitalism and monopolies that have made so many of these services um, fueled by lawmakers here in Washington that have made so many of these services just absolutely uh, unaffordable. Yeah, you know, there, there are some real kind of conservative underpinnings of the kind of anti-monopoly, I, I, you know, approach and ideology. So, so for sure, that's definitely a place where you're going to find some, some uh, allegiance across the, the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. In, inter interesting, interesting chart. It's like a chart of the wheels coming off. Basically. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. A tragically great way to say it, but um, yeah, it's it's worth a look uh, if if anyone has a chance. Amid a constant stream of troubling revelations about Hunter Biden's business and the FBI's uh, attempts, I guess, to look into it, our government's attempts to look into it or perhaps provide some measure of accountability, there's a new headline actually in The Federalist out this week by uh, a story from Margot Cleveland. The Department of Justice may have obstructed important Biden corruption investigations out of Pittsburgh and Delaware. The crux of the story is that FBI headquarters either one improperly withheld information or presented inaccurate information to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Pittsburgh, but also possibly in Delaware. There was a story in Vice News this week, on the other, on the other hand, um, that provided, I mean, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty much like a version of the Peter Strzok story, but with the flip, the parties flipped. This is the Vice headline. ICE agent in sex trafficking unit donated to GOP and then days later went to investigate Hunter Biden. The Hunter Biden story, I think, is so convoluted. It reminds me of the Russia hoax to begin with. There were so many, the, I, I, the collusion 
human stories to begin with. They were so convoluted and so layered, and every little drip, 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 you, it was like you had to be following the plot so closely. You had to have been sort of like furiously turning the pages and tuned into every detail, Brian. But do you have um, a reaction to some of the information that we learned this week? I'll add to that also that Fox News did a digital did a review and found uh, about 14 different people uh, that Joe Biden had met with over the course of his vice presidency who had uh, ties and sometimes very direct links to Hunter Biden's business. That would be foreign nationals that Hunter Biden was lobbying on behalf of, um, or sometimes like Ricchetti and, and others that were just you know American people caught up in uh, his sort of network of business and social connections on the American side. Uh, so, so with all of this constantly coming out and these updates just this week, what do you make of where uh, the, the uh, what do you make of where the inquiries into the propriety of Hunter Biden's businesses stand? I, I think that the you know the increasing politicization of of the of the FBI partisan politicization is it has obviously always been a political organization you know deployed you know pretty viciously uh, in its early days against uh, communists then then deployed uh, you know, viciously against uh, you know the civil rights movement uh, more more re- more recently. You know, deployed in all in other kind of political ways, uh, but now you're seeing partisan politics uh, seep into it in a way that uh, it that that had to happen. It's a kind of a new it's it's a it's a new thing that's happening now, and so you have these twin instances of potentially uh, some FBI agents look uh, you know, p- appearing to maybe cover uh, for Hunter Biden, as you talked about in the Pittsburgh uh, case, or, or and then you and then you have some. Uh, who are going overboard and, and overzealously going after him um, with, through through a partisan lens, you know, similar to how you mentioned that there was, you know, uh, like Strzok may have done himself. Um, and so it really it's going to start to uh, it's going to start to undermine uh, you know what public faith has left in you know in federal law enforcement, and it, and the I think rule it of law is, itself. It gets dangerous when that becomes that. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's that's when you that that's one of the stages of losing a kind of what we call a democracy is when you you have politicized law enforcement branches that are just targeting political enemies. And that's and, the road in order to, to satisfy political patrons. A hundred percent. And that's exactly. It looks like something from us. You you've said this before, and I think it's really apt that like us from the outside looking in on other countries um, and their systems of government, we say this is the slippery slope to a banana republic, um, and this is how you end up with January six over and over again in different contexts. Because when people lose faith in the rule of law, when people lose faith in law enforcement and the government's ability to be pr- provide fair uh, judgment um, on on either side, and you can argue that that's always been uh, frustrated by partisan influence. Of course it has, but it's a question of degree. And I think all of this suggests that the degree is in a really odd direction, a really bad direction. And in fact, this Federalist story is also a, a piece of media criticism. Um, this is stems a lot from Chuck Grassley, uh, who announced that multiple FBI whistleblowers, including those in senior positions, um, had accused the Washington field office of the FBI of falsely portraying as information evidence acquired from multiple sources that provided the FBI derogatory information related to Hunter Biden's financial and business, foreign business activities, even though some of that information had already been verified or could be verified. And then uh, Margot Cleveland goes on to criticize the New York Times. She says, the Times reporting is factually accurate. This is 
reporting from two years ago, um, which even the New York Legacy Outlet's coverage earlier this year confirms in two respects. First, the, quote, money laundering aspect of the Delaware inquiry into Hunter Biden had not, quote, fizzled out, but according to their sources, remains a part of the Delaware U.S. Attorney General's grand jury investigation. And second, the laptop, the famous laptop, contained evidence supportive of the money laundering probe and potentially other crimes. So what you have here is the media uncritically regurgitating leaks from the FBI or without due criticism um, or sufficient skepticism, regurgitating leaks from, from law enforcement and law, law enforcement itself being a partisan actor in its pursuit of justice and its pursuit of the public relations campaign. And so not only do you have the law enforcement acting questionably, you also then have the media going along with it, which I think is another, gets to that other question of how new this is, of, of how seriously we've ratcheted up on that spectrum of uh, undue influence or, or the rule of law kind of crumbling amid partisan influence. And it becomes difficult to follow it for a lot of people, especially as, you know, the yeah. entire kind of liberal sector of the media is mostly not interested in the story. So if you're if you're somebody who's interested in the story and you know some of the details, when you start to share those details with people, with friends, with family or share them on air, uh, you start to sound like a crazy person because you're talking about all of these different people and all of these different connections that people aren't at all familiar with. Whereas in the other ecosystem, they're all just completely understood and just completely taken for granted. You know, 10% for the big guy is like a meme on the right. If you say it on the left, people are like, what? Who's the right. big guy? What's, what's a 10%? Like, le legitimately, they were like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. And that's I like, how do you have a national conversation under those circumstances? Well, well, yeah. And again, this is not to just belabor this point, but this is how you do end up in January 6th type situations because the trust is completely gone. So people have created their own ecosystems and powerful people exploit that for their benefit. And this is something the FBI is actively exploiting for its benefit by going to the New York Times for more favorable coverage that may obscure their own wrongdoing. And it sucks, especially on this issue, because as the Fox News Digital report, I think really highlighted this week when you had all of these um, clients of Hunter Biden's in and out of the, the Naval Observatory when Joe Biden was vice president or even the White House when he was vice president or he was going, uh, one of the, the obvious anecdotes is he's going to Cafe Milano to meet with Hunter's business uh, clients at different events um, over the course of his, his vice presidency. That is not something that's partisan. That's something that people on the left and the right should be extremely uncomfortable with and should have pretty open questions about how it's affecting uh, the Biden presidency, especially as there is uh, legislation in Congress that is going to come to his desk that affects China. He's dealing with Ukraine right now. Um, we know that Hunter Biden had a, a stake um, in, you know, he was basically helping trade on his influence uh, when it, can, it came to one interest in Ukraine, at least. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it just really, really sucks that there's there's no trust left. Um, and it's, it does, to your point, remind me a lot of the Russia stories. It was impossible. I had a really hard time following people who were saying this is not, like this is this is uh, the intelligence community. Um, you know, it is a partisan. Uh, information operation from the intelligence community and the media is going along with it. Um, but you had to really follow it closely to finally start peeling back those layers and, and figuring it out. And that's a, in large part because the media was weaponized by the FBI, basically. And it's, it's very, very hard for uh, you know, the rest of us to, to sort through everything.
maybe they need to start doing kind of committees in pairs. Like it, whenever Democrats yeah. want to investigate something, Republicans will agree to join them um, if Democrats will then join them investigating what the Republicans want to investigate. So so you, won't, you don't get four years of, uh, of just Benghazi followed by what you know, whatever else. So like, all right, let's set up a you, you want to do a Hunter Biden committee. Go ahead. Have fun. Democrats get to do a Jared Kushner committee and Republicans have to be on the Jared Kushner committee and Democrats will agree to be on the Hunter Biden committee. And hey, we can do it in prime time. Make them serialized podcasts like with January 6th. Interesting idea. Um, also, Republicans, by the way, would be so happy to jump on that Jared Kushner <laughs> committee because go. so many of the like hardcore uh, Trump loyalists are absolutely they've been exasperated with Jared Kushner from from day one, um, and there would be plenty of material for that committee, just as there's plenty of material uh, for the the Hunter Biden uh, committee. So I like Ryan's idea. Um, I feel like this is should we should we put this in writing? Should we send this um, from from the desk of Ryan Grimm straight to Chuck? Yes. It's, it's free. It's free for Congress to watch. I mean, free for Congress to, to use as long as they're sitting around watching or listening on the podcast as as uh, is might might be the way that busy people on the go are, are consuming this this product. Uh, but no, That's, it's all you're wrong it's, to it's imply free, that free advice. Is busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Ryan, we actually know that probably it's safe to assume uh, some members at least are watching and listening because this is my, my favorite thing to watch is sometimes Ryan Grimm drops something in a radar and uh, Democrats, Democratic lawmakers uh, start talking about it. So it, it, I think they're definitely listening. Well, then here, here's some more. Here's here's another free one. Do the Kushner committee and you'll find plenty of Republicans that'll join you. That's right. Well, that does it for us on this edition of Rising Fridays. We really appreciate you watching us and hope that you have fun as we sort through all of this uh, often troubling, disturbing news here on Rising Fridays. We try to uh, at least you know, find the, the silver lining as often as we possibly can, even when it's, uh, even when it's difficult. Uh, and those, for those of you who want to listen while you're on the go, as Ryan just mentioned, you can find us anywhere podcasts are available. Robbie and Brianna will be back with all of you next week, and we will see you all next Friday. That does it for us. Have a great weekend, everybody.